tambourine. See what happens. Left me a tambourine. Easter's coming up. Uh, in your handouts, there is a little Easter postcard. And we have that not only to remind you, but so that you can give that to somebody. There's more uh, at the Connect table if you want to ask for more. We'll have more next week as well. But the reason for that is the research is pretty clear. More than 60% of people, when asked by a friend or family member to attend an Easter service, would actually go. So it's like why it's, that's true for Christmas Eve as well. So Christmas Eve and Easter, if you're invited by a friend or family member that you like, because there's some family members that, uh, there's a good chance someone will come. 60, more than 60%, that's a national average where California, probably dropped that down to about 50%, then Bay Area, California. 40% is still pretty good, though, if you invite people. So leave it in a mailbox with some cookies. Don't just, like, you know, put it on someone's door and just, like, leave. Just, you know, bake some cookies, invite a neighbor or something like that. People respond well to Easter services. So uh, make sure to check the times on the webpage too, because we have to do more services and change times in order to accommodate the people. Uh, Almost done with sojourners and exiles. Before we jump into that, though, I want to talk about echoes. Um, And echoes, it's like anything. If you start researching something, well, depending upon your personality. My personality is I can't just read a little bit about echoes. And how they work, I have to go like on the, like the deep, deep, like just spending hours. So I feel like I spent like two days reading about echoes because all I wanted was one little sermon illustration. But echoes, super complicated in one sense, but also super easy to understand in another, in another way. Most of us probably understand that an echo is simply, you know, we say something, the sound waves go out, they hit a surface, and then they bounce back to us. And depending upon the type of sur- surface, they're diminished, so they may not be as be as loud. But again, if you're like me and you're wondering about, okay, sound bouncing across the room, you start asking questions like, why don't I hear echoes nonstop? Like, shouldn't you be hearing the sounds back at you nonstop if they're truly just sound waves that are bouncing against surfaces? Well, two things. One, certain surfaces will mute the sound, specifically like a thick carpet will will absorb the sound wave so you can't hear it on its way back. But also you need uh, uh, a significant amount of distance to create an echo. In fact, you have to have a minimum of 17 meters. Um, you double that, so on the bounce back, it's give or take 34, so that there's enough time for you to actually hear the echo because your brain does something, it does this trick, and thank God it does it because we'd all be insane if it doesn't. But if you hear the echo incredibly fast, so it's like it's not, it's not traveling that far, it's already bounced back to you, your brain just interprets that sound as one sound. Otherwise, you'd be hearing little baby echo, 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 like nonstop, you just go crazy. So your brain just lets you morph that into one, so you have to have at least 17 meters of distance in order for that to happen. The reason why I like echoes, though, is because that helps us build something called sonar, which is the technology that's used in fish finders. It's very important. (laughs) Because the ocean's a big place. It's a very big place. You've got to know where the fish are. And so what happens is sonar, it's just shooting sound waves down to the ocean floor. You measure the time it takes for the, the sound to come back, and then you can map out the ocean floor. And you can know where it hit a fish and bounced back as well. So it's what the military uses in order to map out the ocean floor, sonar technology. And all of that's just jacked from creation, though, right? It's like that's what bats do. Bats are sending out the sound waves and are able to fly in the dark and map out three dimensions of space, know where everything's at, and not bounce their head up against cave walls all the time, simply based upon sound. Believe it or not, 
there is actually a man named Daniel Kish. You can Google it. It's pretty interesting. Daniel Kish, he's a man born blind, and he started using echolocation to see. So he makes certain noises with his mouth and is able to process the distance it takes for it to bounce back. And there's videos of this man who's born blind riding his bike in town. And he's just using, just, and he's able to detect, and not with absolute precision, but he's able to, to avoid obstacles and not run into things. And there's all kinds of theories on how this could happen, but most likely because he was born blind, his brain isn't focusing on processing all the visual stimuli. He's not processing any of this. So the brain got to work in this other area. And so now he started an organization teaching other people who are blind how to use basic echolocation to navigate. It's incredible. And all of that's just sort of like literal echoes, but there's also what we'll, we'll call metaphoric or something that's analogous echoes. So you can also echo people not by sound, but in personality. You know what I mean? You ever caught yourself echoing your mom or dad? You know what I mean? You, were you ever at a place when maybe you were like tw- 12-year-old and, and you had a big fight with mom or dad and you said something like, I swear to God, I will never be like mom in this one particular area. And then somehow when you were raising your kid, oh, look who's back. Look who's back. Look who's back. It, most, these echoes most often come out in our relationships um, with our kids and then with our spouses. So the way you fight, look at the way your parents fought and you might be, be detecting the echoes of that. Now I say all of this because Peter is going to be consistently, he already has been, but consistently and continually echoing Jesus. When we started off this series, we talked about how the New Testament authors echo and, and hyperlink back to the Old Testament. They reference it nonstop. Likewise, Peter is echoing Jesus, both his teachings and his, his life. And the more you read Peter and the more you read Jesus, the more you see Peter's just echoing Jesus. And the reason why that's important for today is the echoes are all over the place. But also, Peter's point in doing so is that we learn to echo Jesus. Peter writes this letter. It's full of echoes of Jesus. And he wants the people reading it to echo the echo, the echo that goes back to Jesus. So that we in our lives are echoing the words and the life of Jesus. And you're going to see these everywhere. So, 1 Peter 4, 7, second to last week. The end of all things is at hand. By the way, when when the passage starts off with the end of all things is at hand, you know it's going to be some good Bible verses. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Already an echo there. The end of all things is at hand. The idea is Jesus is going to return. When? Soon. It's right around the corner. That in and of itself is an echo. Where does Peter get the idea that you better be ready because you don't know when it's going to happen and he's going to come anytime? That's, that's Jesus. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus speaks of the return of the Son of God in a way that says it's soon. You're not going to know when, so be ready. 
You see this best illustrated in Matthew chapter 25. We're not going to go through these, but there's three parables. Parable of ten virgins, parable of the towns, parable of the sheep and the goats. And each one of the parables has their own unique meaning with their own nuance and points, but all three of them blend together to give you this message. The judge of heaven and earth is coming to judge heaven and earth. When is he going to do that? Soon, very soon. No one knows when, so be ready. Now that message is also an echo of something else. So you got to be ready, because you don't know when. If you go back to what we'll call the first exodus, the first time God came to judge the false gods, God judges the gods of Egypt and delivers his people from bondage and the Israelites out of Egypt. He gives them a meal, the Passover meal. And how does he tell them to eat the Passover meal? He says, man, have your, your shirt tucked in, your tunic tucked in, got to have your belt on, have your staff in hand and your sandals on because you have to be ready for the exodus to happen at any given moment. The exodus is the judgment upon the false gods and the deliverance of God's people from slavery and bondage. So in Passover, you must be ready because the exodus is going to happen at any time. Likewise, the ultimate exodus, the deliverance of God's people out of slavery and bondage and the judgment upon the false gods of the age, that's going to happen any moment. So be ready, like it can happen tomorrow. So you're supposed to be ready, but oftentimes people confuse being ready with trying to figure out with precision. Trying to figure out with precision. Do you know what I mean by that? When people try to figure out with precision when that moment is going to happen, when the second coming occurs. Here's some things just from the relative recent past of when people like knew it was going to happen. Now, depending upon how OG, old school Christian you are, you're going to know some of these are all of these. Okay. So if, if you're young, you're not going to know most of them, maybe the last few. But if you've been a Christian a long time and you're in the church world for a long time, you're going to go all the way back to 1988. Anyone remember 1988 and how church folk were saying it was going to be the end? Raise your hand. We got a few? Yep, yeah, a lot of you. You weren't even born. I saw someone wasn't even born yet. Um, <laughs> So this is how it worked. There's all kinds of reasons why, but there's this idea. Okay, in 1948, the nation of Israel is reconstituted as a nation. And so there's a verse in the Bible that talks about certain things occurring, and the generation that sees those things occurring will not taste death. They will see the second coming. So the idea was that in 1948, Israel is reconstituted as a nation, and then that generation then won't see death. They'll see the return of Jesus. So there's a generation that will not taste death. Well, then you've got to do some calculations. 1948, what's a generation? They would say a biblical generation is 40 years. So from 1948 to 1988, at some point in that period, Jesus has to return because that generation won't see death. Well, 1988 happened. Nothing happened. That's when it's like other things happened. That was like the last year good music happened. 1980, I mean, we entered the dark years of, of music and art for, for 20 years. I'm not, I don't know when we're coming out. <laughs> then there was 1993. This one was simple. It was basically people thought 2000 would be the end of the world, year 2000. And so the, what you would do is there's, oh, by the way, 
after Easter, we're going to start a five-week series called The End of All Things, in which we'll be talking about the end of all things for five weeks. And we'll talk more about that stuff later. But for this today, know that there is very, there's different views on how the end is going to play out. And one of the dominant views in kind of American evangelical circles is, is an idea that before Jesus returns climactically and in finality, there'll be seven years of tribulation. And then there's views if like Christians will be a part of that seven years of tribulation or not. Relevant to this, the idea was God's coming back in the year 2000, but you got to subtract seven. You got to make way for that tribulation. So 1993 is the year. I remember some of that stuff because I was, I was young, like 10 years old, and it was scary. Us church folk got to do a better job than some of the church folk did to the little kids back in 1993 because I was terrified. You get people at church, you know, you church kids, you're going to remember some of this stuff. There's these movies where people get their heads chopped off and you're like five years old watching them in Sunday school. Hey, you better be ready. You better listen in Sunday school. Your mom and dad will get raptured. You'll be left behind flesh-eating zombies gonna come get you. Better know your Awana verses. It's like... So nothing happened in 1993, but then Y2K, it was going to end, right? And all the computers were gonna melt down, and then Skynet and the machines would take over. Harold Camping, May 21st, 2011. Had a lot of followers in this area, if you, if you knew Harold Camping. 2011, it didn't happen. Um, then also, this didn't affect the Christian world that much, but kind of among secular millennials, this was a big deal. Uh, the Mayan calendar supposedly ended on December 21st, 2012. So a lot of people are saying that, you know, it's the end of the world, man. That's going to happen. Then in Christian circles a while back, there was the blood moon type of stuff. That still come, that comes up every couple years because there'll be some type of an alliance with biblical prophecy and, and a supposed blood moon, but it didn't happen September 25th, 2015. Lastly, kind of unknown, a so-called Christian numerologist said September 23rd, 2017, but you get it. It's like, we don't know, but what's the point? You live like it's a Passover meal right now. Staff in hand, sandals on your feet, Tunic tucked in, belt, ready to go at any moment. The exodus can occur at any moment, and you live in light of that. So Peter says the end of all things is at hand. Now, some of us go, okay, if that's true, the end of all things is at hand, how should you live? Some of us would be saying, well, I got to build a bunker. You know, I got to go down to Costco. Because Costco has that weird, you know, you can get like 360 days worth of food supply. It's all dried up. You know what I'm talking about? There's like a white bucket that supposedly could feed you for a year. You just add water. Into it. At that point, 100 days into that, you might as well just get out of that bunker and die. Because that's not living. That ain't living not eating off that stuff. So you're going to build a bunker. You're going to do all It's like, no, no, no. The end of all things is at hand. So what should you do? Be self-controlled and sober-minded. But that's not the end goal. Peter's not saying the end of all things is at hand, so be self-controlled and sober-minded. He's saying you're supposed to be self-controlled and sober-minded so that you pray for the sake of your prayers, so that you pray more effectively, efficiently, and more often and more righteously. The end of the world is going to happen. What should you do? You should pray. Then second, above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. It's not the advice you think 
you would get, right? The end of the world is at hand. Okay, make sure you're praying and loving each other. And it's talking about, there's a Christian command that Christians should love everybody, but this in context is talking about the love Christians have for each other. This is love within the body, and not just like South Valley Community Church. The Christians in our area, the, the community of Christians, the end of the world is going to happen, so love each other and pray. Then Peter gives an example of what I, what I think he's doing is giving you an example of what earnestly loving each other looks like. So he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The end is at hand. So be hospitable. Give this crazy event the cataclysmic end of the world. It's going to happen. And Peter wants you to know you should be hospitable in light of that. And this is difficult because we're not good at hospitality. It's the lost sacred art of hospitality. We don't do it well. As a whole, as a culture, we don't do it well. And then in particular, Californians don't do it well. And then even more in particular, Bay Area we, we don't do this. We don't do this well. We don't do good at it. And even though we're not in the like, dead center of Silicon Valley, we're within its orbit. Gilroy is a part of that orbit. And so part of that culture is our culture. And we're just not good at this. We're not friendly. We don't have people over. I've shared this illustration, I think, once, once or twice before. But a long time ago, galaxy far away, I was in a band. And... <laughs> We'd play shows uh, sometimes in, in different states, and we, we, went, we had some shows in Idaho, and it was our first time sort of out of California playing shows. And in Idaho, it was so cool because we thought we were, like, so awesome because all the girls, like, were, they'd come up and they'd make long eye contact with you. They would, they'd ask you, so what's your name? Isaac, you know, what's your name? Type of thing. And, and it, they... They have conversations and great eye contact and are smiling. And you're just going, dude, all the girls here, they just know we're a rock band from California and they're all flirting with us, all of them. And we're just the stuff. And then you spend a little more time in Idaho and you go, you know, all the dudes talk to us like that though too. <laughs> and then you're going, all the grandmas and grandpas. And, the, and then you realize, oh, people in Idaho are just friendly. They're just friendly, and you're not used to it because you're like a, a fish in water. You don't, you're not aware you're swimming. People in Idaho make eye contact. They care to know your name. They want to remember your name. It's like we don't do, we don't do that. We're in, a, in another state, Oklahoma, and we, were, uh, we traveled in a 12-passenger white van, and we slept in the 12-passenger white van because um, although we thought we were rock stars, we were sleeping in the, the white 12-passenger van. And uh, we were sleeping in a Walmart parking lot, which already shows you something. Because the Oklahoma Walmart lets five dudes sleep in their van in their, in their parking lot. Not, not California Walmart. So we, early in the morning, we hear a knock on our van door. And, and out the window is like some 
six five, six six, just strong, older gentleman, but broad, strong, probably did physical labor his whole life, kind of looked Texas Chainsaw Massacre-ish. Um, <laughs> and he knocks, he goes, what you boys doing? And we're like, great, man, he's going to tell us to get out of here. I mean, we, we don't look like him, we don't dress like him, we don't talk like him, we have piercings on our face and trying to be cool and all this stuff. And we're like, dude, this guy's, this guy's a man's man from Oklahoma. He's going to say, you pretty boys, get out of here type of thing. We say, oh, we're in a band, and like, we sleep in our car. You boys need to follow me. I want to take you to my house. And so, but from California, you see Texas Chainsaw Massacre, dude. <laughs> what, what are you going to do? Anyway, we started following him in, in, in our van, and he's taking us. And slowly, we leave the, whatever city we were in Oklahoma, there was a Walmart. We slowly leave the city limits of that area. We start getting deeper and deeper into the sticks, into the country. And at a certain point, one of the dudes in the van's like, this dude's, we're going to die. He's going to kill us. He hates California city folk. We're invading his turf, and he's going to take us out. So we go further and further and further, and then finally there's this, it's a California standard. It's like a little shack in the country. He says, come on inside. We're going to die. We're totally going to die. And long story short, we go inside, and his wife's there making us food. Because there was five young dudes who didn't look anything like him, talk like him, dress like him, but they were sleeping in their 12-passenger white van. She made us beer bread. They didn't have a lot. But they had cheap beer and flour. And so I guess you can make legit bread, just beer and flour. You cook it, and then you put a little honey on it. It was delicious. It was better than the canned beans we were eating every other day. So he found somebody who looked out of place, didn't dress like them or talk like them, and he showed us hospitality. You can change the world with hospitality. And I mean that. That's not rhetorical. You can change the world by practicing hospitality. You know right now that there's people, and some of you will identify with this because it, the, the stats are even higher here. Life is so lonely that if someone makes eye contact with you, smiles and remembers your name, it's the highlight of your day. Do you know that when people come to church, if the next Sunday three people remember their name, they're more likely to, to jump into that community and feel at home? So you change the world by being hospitable, by, by going out of your way to learn someone's name, by remembering them. We need to be a type of community that does this. So, for instance, when people come to the church and who are new, and if you're new here for the first time, you're going, oh, no, he's going to use me as an example. Uh, I won't. I'm just going to need you to come up to the stage for him. <laughs> no, okay. No, no. I wouldn't do that to you. So, new people at church or anywhere, for the people who are on the inside and know the ropes, you can identify them. They don't know where things are at. They look around a little bit longer than usual. You don't recognize them. We need to be a community that sees that and knocks on the 12-passenger white van and say, hey, what, what can I do? How can I help? You new here? Oh, what's your name? My name's so-and-so. And then the next week, you make a commitment to remember their names, not just because you want them to join a church, but because they're made in the image of God and you want to show them the love of God. And you go, oh, so you're new to the church. Oh, sorry, you're new to the area. They go, yeah, where are you from? Idaho. 
oh man, it's going to be rough for you here, bro. It's going to be rough. Bro, you don't even know, man. And then they say something like, yeah, my wife moved here. I mean, my wife moved here, and it's just like she said, it's like a terrible darkness all around, around here. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's right, Mark. It was John. It's not my name. It's like you already forgot their name. You do your best <laughs> to remember them. You can change the world by being hospitable, by being friendly. And we're similar to fish and water. We're just not aware of it. But trust me, as Californians, Bay Area folk, we're not good at this. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, pray, love each other earnestly, and show hospitality. It's powerful. That's powerful. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I want to slow down at this first line. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials. Peter's saying, when suffering, when trial, tribulation, when testing comes, if you're a believer, you are not supposed to be surprised, not to be taken off guard by that. That's incredibly difficult for us for a number of reasons. One, we don't operate off the same presuppositions that the early church did. The early church presupposed that there was a massive cosmic battle occurring. And if you're in a war, you understand that there's suffering and evil and pain and trial. We don't presuppose that there is a massive cosmic battle occurring right now. And you can say, oh yes, we do, we're Christians. And I always bring this up. Yes, but also we're Americans, modern Americans, brought up in Western civilization, and we're materialist. Our eyes are not as open as much as they should be to the spiritual realities at work. And so we know it and we believe in it, but the early church presupposed a cosmic battle and cosmic evil to a much further degree than we do. And because of that, when evil things occurred, they had a worldview that can process that. Oh, of course there's evil because there is a cosmic war. There is a cosmic evil at play. So it didn't make the pain easier, but it gave you a worldview and a lens in which to process and integrate that suffering. But we don't, we don't operate like that. We don't presuppose that. Two, another reason why this is difficult for us. It has to do with our definition of good. So when there's suffering occurring and we're told that God is good and that he's good all of the time, immediate questions arise. Well, if he's good and he's good all the time, why is he allowing me to suffer? And you know, you can debate how much is free will and how much is God's sovereignty, but a lot of that stuff in the moment of your suffering just disappears. It's irrelevant. And I want to be clear, there's different reasons why you suffer. Sometimes you suffer because of cosmic evil, as I just mentioned. There's a spiritual war. Sometimes you suffer because you made bad decisions. You made bad decisions. But sometimes you suffer because of not related to those reasons. And you can ask the question, how could God allow me to suffer if he's good? And the Bible would tell you, actually, it's precisely because it's good that he's not only allowing, he's having you suffer. 
And this is difficult. It has to do with the goodness of God. If God is good and he's good all of the time, he would bring about that which is most good in your life. So you have to ask yourself the question, what is chiefly good before God? What is most good before God as it relates to your life? What is the most good that God can do to you? Think about it. What is the most good God could bring about in your life? He can do to you. The greatest good that God can do to you is to make you more like Jesus. Or as Romans would say, to conform you to the image of the Son. The greatest good God can bring about in your life is to make you look more and more like Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the perfect image of the Father. He's the radiance and glory of God the Father, the perfect image. And the greatest good that God can bring about in our life is to have us image and reflect that which is the glory and radiance of, in the glory of the Father. So, there are some obstacles. If God wants to make you more like Jesus, for some of us, and sometimes, that means there must be necessary suffering in order to make you look more like Jesus. Why? Because even Jesus in his perfection still suffered. He took the cross, feeling the scorn and shame of it, but for the joy set before him endures it. Even Jesus suffers. And if you're going to be like Jesus, that might involve suffering. So the question isn't, if God is good, how, could, how, how would I be allowed to suffer? It's how is God's goodness involved in the middle of my suffering? I'll give you an example. I don't know all the details, but it's a story that a pastor told about someone in his church. And the person in his church, they had a, a small baby. I don't know the exact age. It sounds like it was seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven months. Not a newborn and not a, a toddler who, who was walking around. Seven, eight, nine month old baby. <clears throat> had a terrible condition, and the baby needed a surgery. And the surgery was going to be some life-saving surgery, but it was, it was a rough surgery. It wasn't an easy one, especially for a baby. In order for the surgery to occur, the doctor said, you cannot allow the baby to eat 24 hours before the surgery. So you can see what happens, right? You have mom and dad having to hold a crying baby and withhold food from it. If you've ever had a baby and you withhold a food and milk from a baby when they're hungry for like 20 minutes, it gets pretty bad. Now here's the thing. That baby is screaming and crying and it cannot understand why dad doesn't give it food. And dad, he can't, he can't explain this. The baby doesn't even talk. So what does dad do? He holds the baby. I love you. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I know you don't understand. Daddy loves you. I love you. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I can't feed you. I love you. And you listen to that baby cry and cry and cry. And all the while, it's because that's the only thing that's going to allow this baby to have a surgery which will ultimately save its life. Sometimes you suffer because you've made dumb mistakes. Sometimes you suffer because there's real evil in the world. And sometimes you suffer because... God has to bring about something in your life that you just don't understand at this point. 
but he, do, he does it precisely because he's good. Because the greatest good that God can do to you is to make you more like his son. On the opposite end of goodness, there's, there's another part we have to understand. It has to do with this first word, beloved. In Greek, it's agapetoi. It's, it's the root is agape. It's like a powerful love. God calls you, if you're a follower of Jesus, beloved. Now, this is essential, absolutely essential. You have to believe that the Father is good. So you just sit there and cry and you trust. Because even if he could explain it, it ain't going to make sense. So you just got to trust that he's good. But you also have to have a view and understanding of yourself. You have to know that before this good God, you are beloved. Because the opposite is also true. Some of you doubt the goodness of God, but some of us doubt that there's anything worth in us that God would actually care for or love. Are we of any worth? You know, and sometimes your parents told you otherwise or a spouse told you otherwise. You go, oh, I know God's good, but even though he's good, he wouldn't want to love me. The reason why I'm suffering is because God's abandoned me to my suffering. He doesn't think I'm special. He doesn't think I'm worthy of love. And for some of you, that's your natural inclination. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. The first thing you tell yourself in the morning is how horrible of a person you are. You live with that. And so Peter would say, you have to know the goodness of God, but you have to know how God looks at you. You are the beloved child. I know you don't understand. I love you. I love you. You've got to have a right understanding of yourself and a right understanding of God. And when you do that, Peter says, you can do this. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But... Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You suffer now in the present, but you rejoice for eternity. And you are participating in the suffering that Christ himself suffered. This is powerful, powerful stuff. And he goes on with practical examples. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. That's an echo. If you're familiar with the Gospels, the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. He says, blessed are you when you're persecuted, when you're insulted. So Peter echoes that. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So Peter's alluding to what I just talked about. There's a number of reasons why you might suffer in life. You don't make them all the same. Sometimes you suffer because there is a cosmic battle occurring. Sometimes you suffer because you've made dumb decisions. You got a speeding ticket. You don't get to say, oh, praise be to God now that I suffer alongside of Christ. You got a speeding ticket because you broke the law. And sometimes you suffer because of persecution, because you are a Christian. Sometimes there's common suffering that's common to all of us. But when you suffer as a Christian, you are to not be ashamed, but you glorify God. There's a rough verse right here. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? 
And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Split this in half, first section in the bottom. First, the scary part. Don't you know judgment begins with the household of God? Judgment begins in the church. So when Christ returns, the judge of heaven and earth shows up. He goes first to his people. This is a theme in the Old Testament, too, with Israel. All the nations, they're pagan, doing their own thing, but God's concerned, what, what's, how is his people living? How are they living? So his judgment comes first to the church. And this is the warning for us, because oftentimes church folk can look out at secular culture and look at all the evils. This is evil. This is bad. Look at look how evil Hollywood is. Look how evil politics are. Look how evil this, this. And the Bible isn't saying not to call sin, sin that's out there. It's just saying, before you get mad at Hollywood for being hypersexualized, you better check your browsing history. Before you condemn the materialism of culture at large, are you a greedy person? So you see how that works. And that itself is also an echo of Jesus. Jesus talks about those people who like to, to remove specks in other people's eyes, but they have a big giant plank in their own. And again, hear me on this. It is not saying don't call sin, sin, wherever you might see it. It's saying you better be concerned about you and your life before you're out there judging others. But still call sin, sin. Judgment comes to the household of God first. And then that middle verse, and that, that's scary, right? If even the righteous person is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So it's like you picture the super Christian who's always there every Sunday. They give, they, they tithe and give every week. They're at all the Bible studies. Peter would say, oh, that righteous person, you see, they're scarcely saved. They barely get in. They barely get in. And why? Why are they scarcely saved? You have to ask yourself the question, how does one get saved? You're saved by grace. So nobody gets in because they're so awesome or because of the works they've done. You got in because there's a good heavenly father who gave you grace and adopted you into his family and calls you his agape toy, a son or a daughter of the king. But man, it wasn't because you were so righteous. You barely got in and we all barely get in because we all receive grace. This is similar to, there's a passage where Jesus is talking to about rich people. He says, you know, how hard is it for a rich person to get into heaven? He basically says, it's impossible. There's all kinds of exegetical moves that people do to try to make it not seem that. That's his point. It's impossible. And then the disciples ask, well, then who, who can get to heaven? All things are possible with God. How are you made worthy enough to get to heaven and righteous enough? Because all things are possible because of God. And he gives you grace. And it costs someone his life. And then the part for those who are suffering at the bottom. This is, this is if you are suffering today, this is your verse. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You entrust yourself. I don't get it, God. I don't get it. 
but I'm trusting you, and I'm going to keep doing good. I'm going to be faithful. Let's go real practical, because Peter took us from here. The end of all things is at hand. All these deep messages about suffering and human evil. But let us not forget, what's the point of all of it? The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, pray, love each other, and demonstrate hospitality. So quick, practical challenge for all of you in the room. Ask yourself how you're doing in these areas. What's your prayer look like? Are you praying like the end of all things is at hand? Are you praying frequently? How are you treating other believers? Are you loving each other earnestly? Loving each other. How hospitable are you? Hospitality can change the world, really. It changed someone's life by, by being their friend. You know, it's easy to be church friends, but not real friends. You know what that is, church friends? So you say hi to people at church. That's it. It's different when you invite them into your home. Befriend them. Know their pains. Know their suffering. Know the aches of their hearts. There's a difference. You could change the world by being a hospitable person. So what area of those, those, those things can you allow God to challenge you in? Praying, loving, being hospitable. We're going to take communion and the worship team's going to come back up and I'm going to circle back to the echo thing. There's a reason why, again, all of these echoes are there. Peter wants to echo Jesus and he wants you to echo Jesus. And the trick is, it's not just the teachings of Jesus, but it's the actions of Jesus. And when you're honest with the teachings of Jesus, you realize how hard they are to put into action. Jesus' commands are hard. And so there's an immediate, like, who can do that? Peter, all throughout this letter, whenever he gives you a challenge or command, he then immediately points you to the example of Christ. So it's do X, Y, Z because Jesus said. Who can do X, Y, Z? Look at the example of Jesus who did X, Y, Z. So it's like this. In 1 Peter 4.14, Peter says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. That is an echo of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.11. Blessed are you when people insult you. And for us, you may be saying, Oh, great. Blessed am I when I'm insulted. But Jesus, what about you? Did you live by that? Did you live as if it was a blessing to be insulted? And the answer is yes. Jesus gives his commands and then he does what he commands you to do. He doesn't ask you to do something he has not done. So he gives the command and then the immediate example by which you are to follow. Blessed are you when when people insult you. What happens with Jesus? The son of man, Jesus speaking of himself, came eating and drinking and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So Jesus is insulted. He's shamed publicly. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Jesus wants you to know he's not only poor in spirit, he was poor materially. He speaks of his house situation, his housing situation. Jesus said to them, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He relied on the generosity of other people 
for food and shelter. Itinerant, traveling preacher proclaiming the kingdom of God. Son of man has no place to lay his head. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when others insult you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. As Jesus is on the cross, Luke tells us this, and the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. At the cross, there's someone else crucified next to Jesus, a thief, a criminal. The criminal says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. Do you know how difficult it is to, to show someone mercy when you're suffering? How difficult would it be to look after a suffering person while you're hanging from the cross? Jesus is hanging on a cross, and what is he doing? Giving encouragement and mercy to a criminal. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus said, I thirst. And why did he thirst when he was on the cross? He was thirsty for earthly water, physical water. And he was thirsty precisely because he thirsted for righteousness more than he thirsted after earthly things. He thirsted after obedience to his Father's will. He thirsted after righteousness and faithfulness to the will of the Father. And in pursuing and thirsting after that more than earthly things, he found himself literally thirsty on a cross. But Jesus wants you to know he has bread which you do not know of, and you may drink of water from a well, but he has other water, living water, come up out of you. Now, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, when you do all this stuff, when you're obedient to the Sermon on the Mount, this is what you'll be like. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, if you've been here every week for us for First Peter, is that last line not the entire summary of Peter? Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's Peter over and over again. The judge is coming at a future time. Therefore, now in the present, live in such a way that people see your works and give glory to the Father. Live now in light of the future so that presently others might be saved. Now, the other cool thing about this is Jesus says, when you do all this Sermon on the Mount stuff, you're going to be like a light on a hill. What does Jesus do? He does everything in the Sermon on the Mount perfectly. He's the one who blesses his enemies. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He prays for those who are, who are causing him harm. He acts all of those things out in the Sermon on the Mount. And how does it end? With Jesus on the hills of Jerusalem crucified, the light of the world. On the darkest day, at the darkest moment in history, on the hills of Jerusalem, you see the cross 
the greatest light shining for all. The cross, Jesus shining, putting his words into action in order that others might know his Father as well. And so for us today, as we prepare our hearts for communion, questions. The end is at hand. Are you praying? Are you loving each other earnestly? And are you showing hospitality? And if not, reflect on what you could do to change that. And the question for another type of person in this room, for those of you who are suffering, trust in the goodness of God. Know that you are beloved. You are his agape toy, beloved, adopted by God, brought into his family. And even if it doesn't make sense, and all you see is your father withholding food, you trust him. You trust him. You suffer now, and you rejoice for eternity. Please stand as we take communion.